0: You can live with diabetes. You can live with cancer. You can live with arthritis. And you can live with depression.
1: You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger-Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you, I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download. Listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest, Reverend Rachel Hollander, is a speaker, teacher, writer, performer, singer-songwriter, officiate, host of the podcast, I Wasn't Always Like This, an uplifting podcast about living with depression and the author of From There to Here, An Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness. Listener, this conversation has it all. It's as dark as it is light. It goes from gut punch to gorgeous and so much more. I think you'll really enjoy this show. Rachel, for some, this conversation has the potential to be one of the most uncomfortable conversations they've ever experienced. For you, I know that you are no stranger to uncomfortable conversations. You have your podcasts. You are a spiritual human. You have a beautiful network of support around you, family, friends, Maddie, your dog. I'm curious, why did you
0: say yes to Trauma Hiders Club and why now? That's a great question, because I was sitting with it, I said to a friend, I've been invited to be on this podcast called Trauma Hiders Club, and they were like, well, you don't hide your trauma, and I was like, well, that's, that is true, and so I sat and thought about, like, hiding versus flaunting, and then I also thought about sharing versus how we can grow up all over each other, so, like, I thought, well, that's true, I don't I don't hide a lot and I do share a lot. And yet there are some things that I that I do hold on to. And I also thought about like, have I experienced trauma and what how do I define trauma and how do I redefine trauma in my life now, as opposed to how I would define it in the years when I was like a victim of life and a victim of the world. I said yes to being here because I say yes as a rule. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So
1: I've dug into your book. I'm about a third of the way through. Oh, yeah. I suppose if I were a really expert podcast host, (laughs) I would have ripped through it and finished it by now. So listeners, this is
0: me. Uh
1: (laughs) I'm glad you didn't rip
0: through it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm taking in every word and it's, it's, Your writing style is so relatable and beautiful. And by the way, uh, listeners, if you want a forgiving and gentle font, Rachel thought of that too. I did. (laughs) Yeah, I don't need glasses. That's so beautiful. And so here's what's interesting to me. I, in reading your book and just sort of getting to know you or, or reconnecting with you because we did connect when we were kids. I see for a long time that you were a hider, yeah, and perhaps, you know, when if we talk about trauma as that thing that, you know, hit you, that you didn't see coming, I get why you might say you didn't hide your trauma. However, in reading your book, I see the people around you, unknowing, being the source of trauma, the world being the source of trauma. And your response was, I'm okay, right? Like, I'm going to show you that I'm okay.
0: Yeah, hiding, hiding when I was younger was actually my way of caretaking others. It was, you know, everybody's got so much going on and there's so much chaos and so much trouble happening. I'm going to hide what's happening with me because that'll help me take care of everyone else. Not realizing, of course, you know, because I was a kid, but not realizing that that was really damaging and not helpful. However, also like, you know, in my mind, that was the most helpful thing was, I'm okay, you guys take care of the big stuff. I'm not the big stuff. Mm. And so that became the way I navigated the world was, well, I'll keep my stuff hidden so that other people aren't uncomfortable or don't feel like they have to take care of me or don't get distracted from the big stuff.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I'm sitting with that for a minute, wondering, wondering if my hidden trauma was the same was along those lines for me. Yeah. Okay. It's clear now for me, hiding my trauma was about keeping people away. I'm going to show up brilliantly, beautifully, functional at the top of my game. So you don't know that inside, I feel like filth and trash and a piece of shit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's a great example. So before I share this example, I, when I was sitting with this idea of talking with you and I was like, okay, trauma, what would I consider trauma in my life? And I was looking at like physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, like all the aspects of of potential trauma because I don't call it that. Like I realized that I don't call what happened to me in my life. I don't use that word, mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting because some of those things were pretty traumatic. I don't tend to use that word. However, in relation to what you just shared. So in 1987, in October, which was a month before I was hospitalized for depression, I was raped and I, knew that I had set myself up for that experience. That does not excuse what he did. What I'm saying is I walked into it with my eyes open. And so because of that, when I left this person's apartment, there was a 20 block cab ride that I took. And in that 20 block cab ride, I convinced myself that it was my fault, that no one would ever believe me, and that I should just, and th- and that I had told everybody already, like I convinced myself I had told everybody already and they all went, well, what did you expect? And so by the time I got home to my apartment, I had told everybody in my mind and that became my reality. And so, you know, half an hour later when my roommate walked in and he said, what'd you do tonight? And I said, nothing. And my mom actually didn't find out for a year. And I said it offhand. I said something about... Well, you know, I just saw a picture online of that doctor that raped me. And my mom's like, the what? That did what? Even my own psychiatrist at the time in New York, I didn't tell her for 10 months. And when I told her, it was because I just passed him on the street. And I said, I just passed that doctor who raped me. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I realized that, that I had hit it, not even realizing that I'd hit it. I was sure that I told everybody. And in telling everybody, I was told, you did, you know, you set that up. You, you walked into that, that was your fault. And so- In your mind. all in my mind. And so I was convinced everyone knew. So when I did start actually talking about it, I was met with these shocked faces of, what are you talking about? And should we do something about it, you know, legally? And I was like, well, that's silly, it's been 10 months. So I found like, again, that hiding as caretaking this was hiding. I didn't even know I was hiding. Right. In your mind, you had come out with it. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Rachel, I want one, I want to say there's such heartbreak in that. Mm. Yeah. And as I hear the story and I hear you saying, you know, you walked into that, you knew that there's a, I hear a forgiveness in you. And I'm also noticing that I don't wanna fucking let that be.
0: Yeah, so there's a piece in the book called Rescue Mission. I spent a good deal of my life wanting to be rescued from my life. Mm -hmm. And so what had happened was I had met this doctor in the emergency room when I was with, I was having a withdrawal from an antidepressant and I was having a really bad reaction. And my roommate took me to the emergency room and I met this doctor who was kind to me and laughed with me and was just wonderful to me. And so I had gotten home from that and I would called him. I found him in the phone book 1987 White Pages phone book. And I called his phone and left a message saying, thank you again for being so kind to me. If you ever want to get ice cream, give me a call. And he called a week later, but it was 1030 at night on a Friday. And i'm thinking hey this is new york city 10:30 30 night on a friday this is a date night and so when i went to his apartment i went with the idea that i've been rescued mm-hmm. i found a doctor like i found myself a handsome doctor who's going to rescue me from my life and you know what i found was a bitter angry alcoholic and so you know when i've talked with people about about rape and about the trauma of that and people get I've actually had people get angry at me for saying, like, I own my part in it. And that's okay. If they want to get angry at me, that's okay. I know that I own my part in it because I went there thinking that I was, I had found my rescue mission. And I knew, like, I I had a foot in the door and I saw the half empty bottle of Stoli and I thought, leave, Rachel, leave. This is not a good situation. And I didn't leave. And so... I, I made a commitment to myself to get out alive and, that was, you know, that was it. And so that's the reason why you hear what, what I'm saying and why eventually, and I will say it took a long time. Eventually I arrived at that place of, we were two really broken people who kind of crashed into each other and I'm not that person anymore. And I have to believe that he's not that person anymore. And I don't want to be trapped. In that person, so I can't trap him.
1: Okay, I hear that. Yeah, I hear that. I will
0: say that years later, years later, I went to meet a friend for tea, and he said, "Oh, come to my apartment." And I said, "Okay." And I was visiting New York, and and uh, I took a cab and got to his apartment, and I realized it was the same apartment. No. Yeah, and this was so that happened in '87, and this was in like 2008. Wow. And I didn't realize it till I was walking up to the door and my body told me I got nauseous. I got chills. I started shaking and I was like, oh, my God, this is it. You know, and I was in the elevator and I was in the hallway and my friend's apartment was the same floor plan. You know, and I I just walked in and I said, I need a minute. (laughs) I bet. Wow. What is the chance? Right in all of New York City.
1: Yeah. Same apartment building,
0: but not necessarily the same unit. I don't know. Okay. I think it was the same floor plan. So it might it very well could have been. Wow. <laughs> it was wow. tremendous to see it from like a whole, you know, by 2008, I had done almost all of my forgiveness work around. Mm-hmm. And so like, even though my body was reliving and, you know, re-experiencing, I, my brain and my heart were like, this is fascinating. Huh. Wow. Wow. I don't
1: even know what that, I don't know if that's for me, <laughs> like I'm hearing strength and yet there's a part of me that has like uh, alarm bells going off saying, oh no, that's disassociation. Just be with that. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. Like the, to use the word fascinating it for me would be like, oh yeah, that's, I have now separated my head from my heart and my body and yeah. So, so Rachel, your podcast and your book are primarily focused on your experience with depression and the help that came along the way. Also the help that was not actually help that came along the way. What do you want the listeners of this show to know about living with depression?
0: Oh, my goodness, that that you can live with it. Mm. That's the most important piece. That's why I stress those words. I, I'm a big semantic person. I think words are very powerful and very significant. And so that's why you'll never hear me say things like my depression or I suffer from depression. I don't ever use those expressions because they're not the truth. It's not mine. I don't own it. I don't have it. I live with it. I call it the worst roommate ever because it is the worst roommate ever in a single dish. It never washes laundry ever. Yeah. Really sucky. Really, really bad roommate. So I think like, for me, the, the reason why the podcast and the book exist is because I want people to stay alive mm. I want to know that, that, you know, you can live with diabetes, you can live with cancer, you can live with arthritis and you can live with depression. Hmm. Yeah, really, it was really hopeful. And
1: yeah, I know that it wasn't always like that for you. Oh, my goodness. And
0: that's, you know, the podcast is called I wasn't always like this because I wasn't. Man, there were there were years when I was just literally a victim of the world, the world and life and God and the universe were against me. And I was always fighting a battle. I was always suffering. And when that finally turned around when that finally changed first of all i was able to have such deep compassion for that person that i was because she didn't have tools she had no tools in her toolbox she had nothing to hold on to my therapist in anchorage and i created this idea of instead of sliding down into the abyss that we created switchbacks and we installed trees and rocks so that if i start sliding down into the abyss of depression or darkness i have things i can grab onto and and the switchbacks keep me from sliding directly down oh i love that thank you she yeah. was and that that saves me because back in the day there i would just go i would just go like sliding down or i felt like i was pushed down into this abyss and now it's like oh wait 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 grab that grab that tree mm-hmm. okay I'm not as far down as I think, take a breather, take a moment, I can get back up. And that, that's, that has saved my life. Yeah, yeah, so nice to have that that visual
1: also. And it's just so strong, right? We can imagine trees hanging on
0: to them. Some might say by a limb, but hanging, <laughs> right? Hanging on, yeah. She was a wonderful therapist. She knew how to get to me, which is key. You know, like I need visuals, I need analogies, I need, I, I need descriptions of things. One of the jokes that when I was in the hospital, they dubbed me the analogy queen because I could tell you what I was feeling like, but I, could, I couldn't say what I was feeling. So
1: interesting, Rachel. I think I've probably said this in other recordings on other episodes, but I'm gonna say it again. It is my dream and maybe somebody out there is listening or maybe I'll get to it first to invent some kind of like, like an avatar that's above your head, but it's not an avatar. Um, some kind of artificial intelligence kind of periodic chart (laughs) only, only it's a periodic chart of emotions and it's above everybody's head. And it's, it's not, it's not pointing to what they're thinking, but I can listen and it, and take a look at the chart so that I'll know what I'm experiencing. It wouldn't that be awesome? Here's why, right? We, as children, you are somebody who had, at that point, undiagnosed depression. I am somebody who had trauma. Feelings became stuffed down, Yes, right? Or fear. We didn't want anybody to see that. So to be able to identify What am I feeling? That is a, that's a, that's a learned thing that I didn't know other people get right away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite analogies in the hospital, I think you'll totally appreciate this is there would be days when I wouldn't feel anything, Mm. you know, and, and the nurse, you know, or the therapist would say, you know, what are you feeling? And I described this, that I was in the waiting room of my emotions. And so like, imagine this horrible, generic, like dentist waiting room. That's kind of like that greenish color, that like pale green color. And the cushions on the couch are the vinyl kind with the cracks that pinch your legs. Mm. And the magazines are really old and Muzak is playing. And every so often my emotions would open the door, stick their heads out and go, we're not quite ready for you yet.
1: Oh, wow. then go back in. Mm.
0: So I would say, I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm in the waiting room of my, emotions. they haven't let me in. Right. What that's, <laughs> so, <laughs> that is just so vivid, right?
1: The waiting room of your emotions. And it's yeah. like a horrible waiting room. It well. is a horrible waiting room. And I can, yeah, I think I was there with you. <laughs> yeah. I think I may have been in that waiting room with my chubby childhood legs sticking to that vinyl chair and then getting up with like a rip. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just so condescending, you know, just, you know, you're just going to have to stay here. We're not quite ready. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The world is not ready for your emotions yet. Yeah. You just need to
0: hold tight. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Keep acting. Right. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I learned about you is you come from a very theatrical family. You are the queen of show tunes. Listeners, please read Rachel's book. You will hear something that I just love. There are many things that I loved. Most recently the thing that I loved that I read was Rachel worked in a worked at a gas station <laughs> in the 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 night shift. And she would sing show tunes. You know how you can have a speaker at the pumps? Rachel would sing show tunes through that, which is normally the thing, like I can't get my pump to work, but everyone could hear her show tunes throughout the night. I love that, really.
0: The Beachwood police loved me. Oh, They'd come around around 3 a.m. and go, all right, you need to stop. Wow. <laughs> you need to stop. A couple of the neighbors have called in. I'm like, Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> By the way, Rachel, you never need to stop. I'm just going to say, it. yeah,
0: don't, don't ever stop. It doesn't
1: surprise me that this theatrical family produced this magnificent actress mm, mm-hmm. who could act her way out of the world noticing her depression.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, talk about the world's a stage. It really was. You know, there were times when it was, yeah, I, it was just always, I was always on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I really, I hear that. I hear that in you. I, I really heard that in the book. As someone who acted her way through childhood, I can't say that I acted my way in a way that anyone appreciated. It definitely benefited me. As someone who did that, I can see the benefits. Let's first go to how did that actress benefit?
0: Mm later in the book or i don't know you may have gotten to it there's a piece called the goofiest girl so my dad died when i was 12. it was very sudden it was traumatizing truly. Really. and for a good solid year i was a very dark child i was very quiet i cried all the time i was obsessed with death and suicide and and just darkness and about and i remember the beginning of eighth grade so that was seventh grade the beginning of eighth grade my friends one of my friends said to me you have to stop crying. And so I was afraid I was gonna lose my friends. So I, the pendulum swung from the real me to the goofiest girl. And so from eighth grade all the way through high school, every year I was voted the goofiest girl. I was outlandish, I was loud, I was over the top, and, that, and, and the goofiest girl was on. She was funny, she was uh, silly, and so, I, I joke that I look back when people bring up stuff I did at high school and I'm like, yikes. Cool. One of the things my good friend Dennis always tells me, he says, do you remember that time during class change? And I was, it was, I was at the end of a very crowded hallway. It was filled with students. We were in, in between classes and chaos and noise. And I stood up on a chair and yelled the word penis as loud as possible. And I stopped everything. <laughs> what grade was this? probably 10th or 11th. Amazing. And he was like, do you remember when you did that? And I'm like, yes, I do. The thing is the goofiest girl kept me alive. Right. And so I have to be grateful for her. I don't have to be. And I don't have to be. And I am very grateful for her. She was my suit of armor. She protected me so that I could still be inside crying and scared and sad. And still be in the world. Yeah. What I hear in that
1: this is interesting. I wonder if if this is a pattern with this experience of hiding as a child. So I was among the the funniest in my class. We didn't have those kind of accolades, but in my senior year in high school, yeah, I was voted class clown, which really like class clown nomenclature pisses me off, but like most sophisticated and clearly hilarious would have been a much better title for me. <laughs> yeah. Can you please change that? To- yeah, please. To- I hope that in the history books of my high school, they've changed it to something far more refined. <laughs> Class clown sounds like a jackass, and I was not yeah. a jackass, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had honed my craft, right?
0: There you go. Expert
1: yeah. at being funny, knowing my delivery. You will not see me because I am so fucking good at this. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if there is a pattern in the world where class clowns, goofiest girls, most refined, sophisticated humorists have had some significant
0: trauma in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's like, um... will someone please research this? Yeah. I think it's a lifesaver, you know. Little, yeah. One of those little boat lifesavers that you just jump into and go, I'm gonna hang on to this. Yeah, yeah. For you, what was the
1: so we talked about the benefit, right? You get to keep your friends, there's attention. They're possibly even without knowing the words, they're possibly even rescuers around you, right? Identifying like, oh, I want to be closer to her, right? Well, we see the benefits. And by benefits, listeners, I put those in quotes. Yeah. What was the
0: downside? Oh, nobody knew me. I had, and I still have, a very tight circle of friends. And at that time, a couple of them, I would say two or three of them really knew me and really knew what I was struggling with and were there, you know, over the, over the years. Yeah, the, the downside is it, it keeps people, I'm putting my hands out in front of me. It keeps people at a, at a barrier distance of, well, you think you know me and you know this much. The rest of it, I'm keeping. I'm keeping the vault.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate to that, right? It's just like rescuers. For me, the vast majority of my life has been spent seeking and or craving connection. And people in the world might say, Karen Goldfinger Baker, amazing connector, connected to everyone. And yet, my desire for connection—I was the one disconnecting
0: everyone around me. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like there was a part of me that longed for intimacy Mm -hmm. of all kinds. Yes, and yet I was the one making sure that I had no intimacy. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: If you're if you're anything like me, the same intimacy right on all levels right all levels all levels and yet i too was/am the person who also keeps it away oh and by the way i resent all of you for not being more intimate with me
0: <laughs> why don't you share with me why don't you tell me your secret? right it is a perfect shit cycle yeah i can't tell you any of mine but how dare you keep it right from me? right
1: <laughs> what this happened and you didn't tell me can't you see i am someone who wants to be closer but i push you away yeah right
0: that's kind of the conundrum of being a minister you know it's like i'm i'm ready to be there for everybody anybody i'll listen to anything i'll comfort anyone i'll work with people through anything and yet when somebody says do you need anything nope i'm good wow
1: wait maybe there's something else there for us you're a minister I'm an executive and leadership coach, right? I don't coach everybody, but I do coach like my people. Yes, absolutely. I'm here when you need me. Oh, damn. By the way, clients, I have a coach. so. So know that I am getting, I am also getting coached. Yeah, I did come to that, that, right. I'm willing to receive support.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. How are you with that? I'm still working on that piece of. Hey Rachel, do you need anything or do you need any help? I'm still working on what answer I want to give, mm. and there is there is actually a piece about that in the book about the last time I moved and how I it, I had to <laughs> I had to get to that place where I was curled in a ball crying tragic at two a.m. and actually I still didn't ask for help. The universe sent it to me. So I'm still working that out, and part of that. I'll be honest with you, Karen. Part of that is um, my spiritual relationship with whatever the word people use for that thing that's larger than us. I have a very, very deep and healthy relationship with that thing. I call it God or spirit. Some people, Allah, Christ, universal love, oneness, whatever word you use. I have a very intimate relationship there. And that's one of the reasons why I don't ask humans, because I know I know where my help comes from. And just to clarify for anybody who's now going, and I'm turning this off, I am an interfaith. I'm an ordained interfaith minister, which means all of it's good as long as you're being kind. That's that's the only rule that I have as far as religion goes is whatever you believe is great, just be kind to each other. So when I talk about the G word, I'm not talking about a guy in the sky who's picking and choosing which teams win the Super Bowl. I'm talking about an essence that is creative and is everywhere in everywhere in all of us. So just Mm -hmm. so people don't freak out and think I'm pouring (laughs) Kool-Aid into cups, I'm not. (laughs) For me, that relationship has always been very intimate. And and so when I don't want to ask another human for help, I know that I can lean in on that. Hmm. That's beautiful. And (laughs) there's the and.
1: And the, yeah, the hider in me is looking at how in my own experience, asking someone for help is really vulnerable, right? Ooh, that V word. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for me asking for help, right? Because I, I spent the vast majority of my life not wanting anyone to know like the, the brokenness inside of me. So how if i ask for help there's a weakness a wanting a something that i am not to ask another human
0: and what if they say no and
1: what if they of course right what if they say no oh and what if they say yes either way i lose
0: right you you make yourself you i we make ourselves vulnerable and what's more scary is if they say no or if they say yes right right i lose either way so you can
1: count on me to get shit done. <laughs> yes. Yeah, although it's at great expense to me. Yeah, to my energy, to my well-being. My old patterns absolutely are in glory, and at the same time, yeah, there's some suffering that goes along with that. Yeah, it's I, it's interesting. I'm learning, you know, through what feels like a lifetime of therapy, and it is only hundreds and hundreds of hours. I'm learning about no for me, right? When people ask, I'm also learning about asking. Not great at it yet, but that's why we call this all a practice. I get to keep trying. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and that's also, I'll just add to it. Again, one of my perfectly imperfect shit cycles is, oh, but I will resent you for not helping me.
0: <laughs> yes. You didn't ask or you asked. I said no. And Then you didn't do it. Right. Yeah. How could you?
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious. I've read in the guide, which is actually called The Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness. The book is called From Here to There, The Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness. I learned where acting no longer served you, even in a psychiatric hospital the actress was very prevalent until she couldn't be anymore yeah and what i found really interesting was if i'm re- if i'm reading this right the actress who was very prevalent in the psych ward looking like a good patient having the answers being pleasant when the actress could no longer show up is when the hospital system let go of supporting you.
0: Yeah. That for me, was I, I, that was like a gut punch. It was very, it was very frustrating. Yeah. They were willing to do anything while I was being, while I was behaving myself, while I was the ambassador to everybody. And yet in the moment when I actually knew what I needed, I knew what I needed for the first time. And that was the moment they were like, Nope, and I should clarify, it was not the nursing staff because they were amazing. It was the chief psychiatrist who spent little to no time with me. You know, there's a hierarchy when you go in, you have like a weekly session with a chief psych, you have every couple of days with an intern, and then you see the nurses 24 seven. And here comes this, you know, once a week chief psych saying, nope, this is what needs to happen. Everyone around him was saying, no, that's not what she needs. She's telling us what she needs and she's right, but they couldn't, they couldn't go against his orders. And so, yeah, they failed miserably and, and ended up damaging me. They ended up killing me, but I did come back from that. And then, and because of that, there was permanent damage and, and and then tried to sue me for a lot of money. So it was very, it was fascinating. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The,
1: so it was the shock treatments to quote unquote, cure your
0: depression, cure depression. yeah, to, to, well, to get me to be cooperative for one, as I stopped cooperating to them, that was their last resort. They wouldn't do anything I asked them to do. And so they decided that was their last resort. And of course, for me, when the intern told me that this was the plan. My only question about it was, could it kill me? Because my thought was, this is great. They're going to kill me. My mom can sue for malpractice. I'm off the hook because I'm out of here and she gets a ton of money. And so you'd think that they would pay attention to the fact that a highly suicidal, highly severely depressed person was saying, yep, great. (laughs) Sign me up for the risky thing, but I was 24. And so their whole thing was, well, she's old enough to sign for herself. My mom and my sister, Anita, like, I mean, they almost lost their minds. They were like, you let her sign for that and legally they could. Wow. Isn't that interesting? There you are
1: rescuing your mom, right? I'm going to, I'm going to exit stage left, right?
0: It'll make everything okay for everybody. It'll
1: make everything okay for everybody else. Hmm. I'm curious, what did you want
0: to have happened other than shock therapy?
1: What was that thing that you wanted?
0: Well, what I had asked for was that, so what had happened was a, a young woman who was the same age as me had jumped off the roof of the hospital. And that had triggered me, that had triggered something in me to suddenly tell the truth. And what I wanted was about 10 minutes in what they called the quiet room, which was sort of a, you know, a room they could lock me in and I could scream and yell and not hurt anybody or myself. And I just wanted, I wanted like 10 minutes in there to just scream. And because I felt like at 24, I had never screamed. I felt like I had never made the sound in me that needed to come out. And that sound was ready to come out. And I wanted a safe place to do it. And so the nursing staff was all for it. They were like, you know, yep, let's do that. And I said, and I promise you, I told them, I said, I promise you, if if I can do that, I will start telling the truth about my feelings and we can actually get to work. And the doc, doc's response to that was, nope, that's irrational. That's dangerous. And instead he doubled all of the medications I was on, which were toxic. I was on, I mean, these, you know, this is, as I said in the book, this is before the days of the friendly SSRIs. I was on highly toxic medications that once he doubled them, I couldn't walk without using the wall i couldn't stay awake and i couldn't journal anymore because my the tremors in my hands were so bad and so they took away they took away me and i left them with i i gave them back nothing wow i'm so sorry i'm yeah thanks yeah, yeah. so it was as i i refer to it i don't even know if i say this in the book in life i refer to it as one of the biggest missed opportunities mm-hmm. ever Right. We missed this opportunity to help me have the opportunity that I'd been missing,
1: yeah, and right. And here you were ready, right? I'm ready. I will stop acting. I've been acting all along. I'm ready for the truth. So uh, it's huh here here's yet another connection when I was finally ready to share that as a child, I'd been molested for a year. When I did share, those around me did the best they could. However, it really was a second trauma.
0: Yeah. 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 I hear that. For years after the hospital, for several years after the hospital, I used the hospital story as a story to keep me safe from re-traumatizing. Sure. Sure. There's a righteousness about it. There was, you know, I, and it was a test too. Mm-hmm. It was a test. If I tell you this story, will you still be near me? Right. Will you still be friends with me? Will you still want to go on a date with me? Will you still yeah. want to, you know, share my life with me? If I tell you this story, what will you do? Mm. And yeah, and in a way, like when you, you know, when you chose to, to say, this is what's been happening. Mm-hmm. It was almost like this test of, are you going to hear me? And when they don't, it's, yeah, horrific. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's really, um, wow. Hmm. We have so much more to talk about, Rachel. Um, I think we might (laughs) might need a part two. (laughs) Will you come back for a part two?
0: I would. We have to get to the gratitude piece. We
1: do. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, but for now.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say one of my mom's friends. Was reading the book, and she called my mom and said, "When does? When do we get to the happy part?" (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been with
1: uh, now that I've spent some time with you and spent time on this podcast with you. It's so magnificent, gorgeous, and beautiful to see how the work that you've done on you, the support that you've gotten, the way that you have opened up to let higher power and humans be by your side. I can I can see that in you. There's an openness and spiritual and essence and all of the things in you. And we're not done yet. Yeah. Because okay. I have I have two more questions for you. Oh, okay. Okay. One, the question I want to ask is, what do you imagine would happen to you if you hadn't gotten the help you got? But I'm going to ask a different question. What do you imagine would happen would have happened to you if you didn't have the love
0: of your family? Mm. So I think the the key here is that I don't know that I wanted so much to die as I wanted to stop feeling what I was feeling. And when I finally was released from the hospital, I was given the option to leave New York City or go to a locked unit and spend the rest of my life there. And when I did decide that I would leave New York, the, the psychiatrist told my mom that I was most likely going to spend the rest of my life in a group home, that I wouldn't be able to live independently. And there was a part of me, and so in answer to your question, there was a part of me that thought, that sounds great because I can play bingo and I can eat pudding and I can, and I don't have to ever do my laundry. and I won't ever have to work and all I'll have to do is get up in the morning and brush my teeth and shower and then eat some and then go back to sleep. I mean, I, like, I I. think that if I didn't have the family that I have or the friends that I have or the guidance that I've been given, that life would have been mine and it would have been okay. It was to an extent, it would have been okay. Like in the book, I think I, I of course I say, I think shock, ter- shock treatment, long-term damage. But I believe that I included in the book this pros and cons list I did for, you know, group home versus not group home, (laughs) living independently versus not, you know, and it was, it was like there were pros and cons to both. So I think that if I didn't have that, I would have wanted to stop feeling what I was feeling. So I would have agreed to be medicated and I would have lived, you know, in a group home and eventually people would stop visiting me and that would have been my life. So I'm so I'm very grateful again, gratitude, grateful that the universe said, No, no, <laughs> that wasn't the path of this lifetime. In case you're not paying attention, <laughs> that you're going rogue, get back yeah. on track with the path of this lifetime.
1: I want to dig deeper into that, so maybe that'll be in our part two. However, I'm going to ask you this question, yes, because I think this is a question every podcast guest should answer. What are you most excited about in your world? What do you want our listeners to know?
0: That I wrote a book.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, yes, you did. And not only did you write from, he- from There to Here, An Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness, you wrote a book that is, I feel strange saying this, a
0: joy to read. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, it took so long, and it was so heartbreaking the process and and it it would be encouraging and discouraging all at once and um and now that I can hold it in my hand, and I hear people say things like what you just said, mm-hmm. write to me and say, "One of my friends just wrote to me and said, "You need to create a workbook because I've been taking notes in the margins and highlighting and and I want a workbook, like create a workbook, and so To know that the book is actually useful and useful, and it is a guide like that. I did what I wanted to do. I, I succeeded at that. And that is, I have a tattoo on my, my wrist that reminds me long story about past lives and all that stuff. But it says, I chose this life because I am triumphant in it. It's my reminder of why I stayed. And so, this is one of those moments where I can say, Oh, I did it. <laughs> yeah. And it is, it is a, it's a triumph.
1: It feels strange to say, What a joy to read, <laughs> right? There's a lot of, there were so many moments where I, my mouth hung open. I was stunned, where I cried. And by the way, not because of you, but because of the world. And also the pain, my own pain. My own secrets, my own quiet around what I was experiencing. I was right there with you on your lawn. Yeah, playing Spud, the stupidest game in the world. Hate that (laughs) game. Hate that game. Oh, by not only do we call your number, you got to run fast. Thank you. No, thank you. And then you got to throw the ball and smack somebody in the face. And you know, those red balls. That's horrible. That red ball that is just, by the way, listener, if you think you don't have trauma and you've ever been in gym with the red ball, you have trauma.
0: You have trauma. <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> if you've ever had a gym teacher, you have trauma. Uh, maybe that'll be another show. Although all the ways that you think you don't have trauma,
0: and I'm going to tell you all the ways you do. But yeah, I'm, I was right there with you. Thank you. Yeah. The, one of the things that someone said was, it was surprisingly funny that the book was surprisingly funny and in parts, in moments. And that was that was good to know because I don't, I certainly didn't set out to write a book that was going to make you want to curl into a ball. You know, I wanted the book to be able to say this is what it's like on the inside. And there are moments that are still fun. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, you've done it. You've done it. And Ooh.
0: yeah, it's there.
1: Okay. So one of the things you want our listeners to know about is From There to Here, An Insider's Guide to Navigating the Darkness book by Reverend Rachel Hollander. And anything else? I went to your website. It
0: looks very fresh and vibrant. Is that new for you? That is new for me. My wonderful friend, Victoria, designed it and does beautiful things on it. We're creating a shop and just fun things are coming. So yeah, the podcast is on there. I would love people to give a listen to the podcast. I'm not sure what's happening to it now because I've reached this now moment, and it started at the beginning. So we'll see what's going to happen with that. Some, of, some other stuff is on the website. So that's, yeah. And tell us the name of the podcast. The podcast is called I Wasn't Always Like This, an uplifting podcast about living with depression. Beautiful. So the book, the podcast, where can listeners find you? And people can find the pod, the website at www.. RevRachelHollander.com, that's R-E-V as in Valerie, RachelHollander.com. Rachel, just R-A-C-H-E-L, no Q's or umlauts. Got it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really beautiful. Rev Rachel, I am honored to have spent this time with you. I'm honored to have reconnected with you since we didn't know that we were both in pain as children and yet we were together so interesting. Yeah. And I'm hoping that you will come back again and maybe again and again.
0: I would love to. We, we need to talk about gratitude. We do. <laughs> I would love to come back. <laughs> yeah. We need to talk about gratitude.
1: There's so much. There's who knows where it'll take us. <laughs> and I will end by saying, I am grateful that you are here. I am grateful that not only are you here on this podcast, but that you are here in this universe. And I'm grateful that you are within my orbit. And I have no doubt that our listeners are grateful for your truth, for your ways of being, for your book, for your website, for your essence, and for the gift that you are. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club.
0: Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.